The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc. administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co. Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Rahman, and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this episode titled, The Latest Breakthroughs in Immunotherapy for Genital Urinary Cancers. My guest today is one of my partners at Penn State Health, Dr. Monica Joshi. Dr. Joshi is a genital urinary medical oncologist, as I mentioned, at Penn State. She also co-leads our GU Cancer Program. She's a professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology in the Department of Medicine. And outside of Penn State, she's the Chief Scientific Officer of the Big Ten Cancer Research Consortium. Her research predominantly revolves around novel clinical trials in genital urinary cancers. Monica, uh, first of all, I know you've done uh, at least one of these, if not more, uh, in the past with us. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us today for this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, chat with you. Um, And um, we're hoping for uh, today's uh, discussion, we can um, hopefully cover some of the newest immunotherapy drugs that are uh, approved in the GU cancer, including uh, bladder, kidney, Uh, maybe touch a little bit about what's happening in prostate. We'll discuss uh, the clinical evidence supporting the use of the immunotherapy in GU cancers, including uh, pivotal clinical trials, uh, survival outcomes, and hope to also touch upon some of the safety profile, immune-related adverse events, as well as some of the side effects from these newer therapies. Great, great. So I think you you summarized it well. I mean, we're gonna be going through several different um, GU cancers. So we'll we'll start with um, uh, bladder and urothelial cancer. Uh, Obviously, um, uh, I I think a very exciting time in that realm. Uh, you, You obviously do a tremendous amount of research in that space. Um, and maybe we'll just start off first and foremost and, and talk about things maybe that urologists and urologic practitioners would see most often, which is this whole concept of um, maybe residual or, or advanced disease following maybe uh, surgery, for example, after radical cystectomy, and the concept of adjuvant therapy after that. So maybe I would just start off and say, um, just from your perspective, um, what, what are the scenarios where adjuvant therapy would be recommended, for example, after, after bladder cancer surgery? And then we could talk a little bit more about, you know, the, the data on adjuvant therapy. Yeah, so this is a really exciting times uh, for um, bladder um, cancer um, physicians or, um, you know, experts as well as the patients because there's so much going on. So if we look into the adjuvant, so adjuvant is basically any therapy that's given post-definitive uh, treatment. Um, we know that 
when the high-grade urethral cancer, especially anybody who's more than T2 and above or node positive, there's high risk for recurrence locally. So about, you know, more than 50% chance. We also know uh, from previous literature that um, while the perioperative or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, to be precise, has improved survival, there are significant number of patients who are not eligible for cisplatin. So I would say 40 to 50% who wouldn't even get that. Um, so would go straight to surgery. And certainly these are your uh, population that uh, also have high risk for recurrence. And um, I would say one fourth or up to 30% of patients could decline chemotherapy because bladder cancer is a cancer of older population. So they don't want to get chemotherapy. So that leaves this room for development of adjuvant therapy. So in today's and present era, we certainly have already nivolumab, that's the anti-PD-1 uh, therapy that was approved uh, by FDA um, somewhere around 2021. Um, and it was based on this, on this uh, large uh, clinical trial, that's uh, Checkmate 274, that compared nivolumab to placebo. So we have to go back and look at what patient population did, did they use. So in that study, uh, they used this exactly high-risk population, so anybody who was more than T2 um, or node positive after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so that was important. Or they used uh, patients who had PT3 or PN1 without neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and uh, per the trial, the patients also declined chemotherapy. So this was the chunk of population uh, that went into these trials, um, into this trial. And then um, had more than 700 patients, they randomized NEVO versus observation. Um, and what they found was that the disease-free survival almost doubled with the use of nivolumab for a year. It uh, was about 20.8 months versus 10.8 months. And the advantage was more for patients who had tumors that were PDL1 positive, so more than 1%. Um, so, so that was um, really fantastic. And, and this uh, study also contained about, I think, roughly 20% of upper tract tumors as well. Um, so it didn't have any residual disease. The toxicity profile was very similar um, to any of the checkpoint inhibitors that we use. So this was a positive study, and we're now hearing um, the ambassador study. That's another phase three study using pembrolizumab in adjuvant setting. That is also showing improvement in disease-free survival, so more to come on that. Um, what had puzzled prior to these um, two studies coming up, there was Invigor uh, 10 study that compared atezolizumab versus observation, and unfortunately didn't meet its primary endpoint, but we learned more from that study that um, when it was further investigated that maybe there was a role for ctDNA. So in summary for, for the question that you asked, I think certainly there's a growing body of literature that immunotherapy for high-risk patients, um, as um, we talked about in the checkmate study that led to the approval of nivolumab, patients benefit from the use of immunotherapy. So would suggest to always refer these patients to a medical oncologists to have that discussion. No, that's a, that's a great take home message, which is that those that are at high risk for disease recurrence, uh, it is sort of critical with this data to make sure that uh, we are having them see our medical oncology colleagues. They are being offered 
immunotherapy options. You, you mentioned briefly, and just to close out this section, let's talk a little bit about uh, circulating tumor DNA. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and sort of how that might play into the equation um, with you, when you think about adjuvant therapy. So I think it's a very, um, you know, fascinating technology, which I think has um, both prognostic and predictive uh, implications as a biomarker. So it's a, it's a measure of microscopic residual disease in the blood. Um, and the most commonly that's actually commercially being used is the Signaterra or the Natera um, guided testing that they do. Um, and like I was mentioning previously in the Invigor um, 10 study, um, the researchers further analyzed patients who had positive circulating tumor DNA. So meaning they could find, so, you know, I, I sort of compare this to the era of the CML. If you look at CML patients, you know, they look for molecular remission. So we are now in an era that we can actually look at molecular. So there is radiological, there is direct visualization. If the patients, you know, have the bladder, you do cystoscopy. And then I think um, for those who have had surgery, this is a great tool to reassure ourselves that perhaps, you know, patient is in remission. Um, and uh, from that study, what we learned was those who had positive ctDNA, there was benefit in disease-free survival and overall survival for the, with the use of a tazolizumab. So this was great. And those who didn't have it didn't benefit. So there are more studies going on, like Invigor, um, Invigor 11, which is also for high-risk uh, MIBC uh, patients who have ctDNA positive to give adjuvant tezolizumab versus placebo. There are uh, similar studies that um, similar study that's actually evaluating use of immediate nivolumab versus delayed nivolumab. Those that are ctDNA positive, and I, I can probably you know highlight if if we are treating somebody or or somebody is on fence after surgery and really don't want to do it. Um, now, I wouldn't suggest doing it because this is outside context of trial, but some of us are already kind of doing uh, these tests. So they um, they do it every three months. And uh, for my sake, I, for my patients, I tend to get at least two negative. So if they're really having side effects from immunotherapy and you want to stop, it gives me that reassurance um, which currently is not, you know, validated. We all understand that. But I think that is the way we would be looking into that. If the ctDNA is negative, do these patients really need treatment? Or can we stop these therapies to prevent side effects? So um, the circulating tumor uh, DNA concept is not just in bladder. I think it's being used in, in other cancers type as well. So more to come of that. That's great. That's um, uh, very intuitive, makes a lot of sense. I think ultimately it helps, uh, as you alluded to, in several different settings, which I think will get better, better vetted out of um, when patients may most optimally benefit from uh, systemic therapies and, and maybe even duration of therapies. Uh, I guess more to come there. So I, I feel like the area that has become extraordinarily exciting in the last three months um, has been for several years, but now, especially with uh, obviously the new trials we're going to talk about, a new trial in particular we're going to talk about the last three months is is really the management, the first line management of metastatic urothelial cancer. And so uh, maybe I'll start off and ask you, 
um, you know, what is the current standard of care? Uh, where were we? Where are we now? And maybe talk a little bit about um, the, the changing landscape based upon some of the, the studies that um, uh, have been completed. Um, so I think there is, um, you know, this is the time period that's like, I, I personally, I feel it's a golden era for um, bladder cancer patients, especially in the advanced um, setting. Uh, because there's so much has changed as we knew, we all knew cisplatin, cisplatin, that is the key therapy, that's the number one therapy, and carboplatin-based chemotherapy is inferior, so must use cisplatin. But like we talked before, not many, you know, uh, about half, 50% uh, of these patients um, can't take cisplatin, right? So what do you do now? So this has led to several developments. Um, and um, if, if you recall Javelin um, 100 study, that was a phase three study that led to the approval of avalumab. So you give chemotherapy cisplatin or carboplatin, and then followed by the avalumab maintenance. And that had shown a median overall survival of 21.4 months, sorry. Um, and that was for patients who had good response, stable disease, partial response, a complete response. So that's where we were, right? And then this new drug came into the horizon called as enfortumab vidotin because the, the whole concept of antibody drug conjugates. And, and these are very unique um, type of agents that can actually target the surface molecular and deliver that payload directly to the cell. So that it's it's great in the in the drug delivery. So enfortumab vidotin is targeting your nectin-4, which is present um, in a lot of um, bladder cancer cells, and then has a payload of what we call as MMAE. It's monomethyl oristatin E. And this is the this is the killer here. And it had shown promise. It was already approved in late setting, so in refractory bladder setting. So there was um, recently the study that that changed this whole landscape was the EV302 keynote A39. So it's a phase three study that is combined, uh, that randomized about 886 patients into enfortumab vidotin plus pembrolizumab. So there was a combination of anti-PD-1 and the EV versus the chemotherapy. So on the experimental arm, the patients got about 35 cycles of the pembrolizumab and they continued to get the EV, which is your day one, eight, every three weeks. And the chemo was usual for six cycles. Um, they did take cisplatin or carboplatin, um, you know, whoever could get. So that was your group of patients, newly diagnosed uh, patients. And what we did see was that the, um, in this study, the progression-free survival uh, for these patients was doubled, 6.3 months in the standard of care arm to 12.5 months with a hazard ratio of 0.45. What really blew in, and this was presented in ESMO this year with a standing ovation um, from, the, from the people sitting there, um, the median overall survival was 31.5 months in those patients who got the EV plus Pembro was a 16.1 months with really impressive hazard ratio of 0.47. Um, and uh, the response rates were about close to 70% with a CR of 29%. So this really changed the whole field. And it actually last week, it got approved for the use. So, uh, so back in April of 2023, this combination had already shown promise for use in cisplatin ineligible patients with advanced disease, and now we can use it for all patients 
Um, the median duration of response is not reached, uh, but this is exciting period. Um, and then if you look at the same time, when we talk about this EV302, we can't not talk about this Checkmate 901. It's a great study, was presented in the same forum. And, and you know, the excitement from the EV302 maybe marred a little bit of the excitement on the Checkmate. But again, Checkmate was uh, is a great study, large study comparing gemcitabine cisplatin versus nivolumab plus gemcitabine where the chemo was six cycles and patient continued. And again, PFS and OS, and both of them showed benefit. Now here, the overall survival was 21.7 months versus 18.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.78. So if you compare, you know, we can't compare apples and oranges, but let's for the sake of this talk, let's see the hazard ratio of 0.78. And there you have a median overall survival of hazard ratio of 0.47. So I think there is a lot of excitement with the EV and PEMBRO. Um, what is important for um, the Checkmate 901 using the chemo and the immuno combination is the duration of the response. I think uh, in, in this, the duration of response was about 37 months. Now for the EV study, it hasn't reached. There are different toxicity profiles for it. So so providers could choose which one to give, but this is certainly an exciting area. So to sum, sum it, I think at present, EV um, plus pembrolizumab has become the standard new standard of care for metastatic advanced urethral cancer patients. There's still room to use the chemo and immunocombination in those patients who can't take the above combination. No, it's uh, it's great. Yes, I, I I saw that on Twitter. That I, it's, uh, I've never seen a standing ovation from the audience before, yeah. but I, I saw that it was posted. I think even Tom Powell's just uh, was it he didn't he win something in Lancet just this week? Or yeah, I think it was a nature he got yeah. named. So I think yeah, Dr. Powell's presented this. This was an amazing. I think it's an amazing study. Um, the EV is a great drug. And um, we all are happy for um, you know all our patients because 30.1 months I've not seen it yeah. in any uh, other studies. Um, we'll we'll talk a little bit. I, I, we'll just keep sort of the EV um, a combination just uh, to the side for a moment because I do want to I want to talk about kidney cancer, but I want to come back at some point and just talk a little bit about some of the side effects with some of these therapies. But maybe what I'll do is just uh, for our listeners, I'll pivot over to kidney cancer. So we've talked about bladder so far, well, bladder and urothelial. We've talked about adjuvant. Uh, we've talked about treatment in the first line metastatic setting. So let's talk about um, um, kidney cancer um, and, and sort of the evolving role of immunotherapy uh, in the upfront setting for, for metastatic uh, RCC. And, and what are some of the new trials out there, the, the concept of combination versus uh, therapies versus single agents, um, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think for the kidney cancer uh, patients, uh, uh, you know, they, um, they, they have plenty of choices now. We all have plenty of choices to choose from because immunotherapy has become the backbone of kidney cancer treatment in advanced setting. Um, so there are at least five studies that highlight the role the first one is your ipilimumab and nivolumab, the Checkmate 214 study. And the second one is your pembrolizumab and exitinib study, which is the Keynote 426. And then you have the avolumab and exitinib, uh, you know, Javelin 101, 
um, kind of phased off. Nobody's using uh, avolumab so much in this setting. And then you have the Cabonevo study, right? Um, the Checkmate 9 ER, and then uh, the CLEAR study, the Pembrolizumab and Lembima. So the combination of IO and IO, so immunotherapy doublet or immunotherapy and TKI, that's the way to go. I think it's very important when a patient walks in to really classify them into you know, um, good risk, intermediate, poor risk category, and then to kind of decide what treatment you do. Because for some good risk treatment, uh, good risk patients, you you know, TKIs could still be a reasonable choice um, or favorable risk uh, group. But when it comes to the intermediate and poor risk, I think if you take um, the Ipinevo study, um, very that was a positive study. Uh, in terms of survival, and there was a there is a long follow up. So if you look at the thirty months and approximately sixty months, I think both these uh, time points uh, did show benefit in median overall survival versus sutin. So sutin was the the comparator um, that was chosen. So at sixty months, about forty seven. Um, Median overall survival about 47 months versus 26.6 months. So I think this is this is an important um, you know study uh, to keep in mind. And um, some some of the patients that could benefit is where you're not looking for immediate response, right? You, they have some time to wait, um, and I think the durability of response is longer. And patients can come off treatment. That's important for an IO doublet when compared to IO and TKI. So it's an important one. The other one that to, to keep in mind is the pembrolizumab and exitinib study. Now, um, again, we have really long-term um, follow-up for these studies showing similar benefit about 60% um, overall response rate and 10 to 12% complete responses. So, so that's important to remember. And again, the median overall survival for that at 67 months, I think the long-term follow-up um, also was positive, was about 47.2 months. And uh, similarly for CLEAR study, that was the Pembro and Lenvima study. And they all compared it through, um, again, Sutent. Um, for, uh, for that one, um, again, impressive, impressive overall response rate, 71%, about CR of 18%, uh, median OS uh, at 53.7 months, of uh, 53.7 months was the median overall survival at the median follow-up time of 49 months or so. Um, and the PFS benefit was more in the pembrolizumab and lenvima group, 23.9 months. And similarly, if you compare, uh, if you look at the Checkmate um, study, which is the Nevo Cabo Nevo study, that also at a long time follow-up at 44 months or so showed a positive um, outcome with the overall response rate about 56 with 13% CR. So I think all these studies are really, really great. The, um, you know, the triplet study, the, the one with Cabo, Nevo, Ipi, didn't really pan out with more toxicity, so that wasn't chosen. Uh, but these are these are good group of studies that you can base your evidence when you talk to patients. Um, and, and, you know, some, if you feel based upon the side effect profile as which you choose, you can offer them. What's important to note is you know, um, there has been a meta-analysis, and I forgot to include in the, in the reference, but there is a meta-analysis um, that also has combined um, the, the studies and tried to look into what happens to the favorable risk, right? We knew that the, the NEVO and IPI was not 
doing so much because for favorable uh, risk group, I think the, uh, the response rates were similar. What was important was the CR rate was almost double. So 13% versus 6% median duration of response and treatment free interval. So, um, so in terms of the current approval, we feel um, for um, the combinations of um, IO and TKI, you can definitely offer them. But again, you know, the, the overall survival benefit is not panning out in all, but it can provide some of those uh, increased uh, improved CR as compared to, to the TKIs. So if you're thinking about treating a patient, um, you know, if, if a patient walks in the door and they have metastatic RCC, and if they have oligometastatic, it's, you know, it's managed a little bit differently. Um, you know, can they have a surgical resection or can they have uh, radiation? I think there are great studies going on. Um, there's one of the ECOG study that's using the SBRT approach. I know there's a, another NRG study that's using it. Uh, but then, you know, so that's different. So now you've determined it's metastatic needs systemic therapy. You've already done your, um, you know, look at the pathology. So if it's like a sarcomatoid, high sarcomatoid percentage, then um, medical oncologists would generally tend to use more of an IOI or base therapy, provided, again, an urgent response is not needed because it can take time to do. And if you, um, you know, if you do the IMDC risk, and you see, you can then choose, look at the patient, talk to them what they want. If it's younger and you don't need an urgent response, I know I tend to use IOI or doublet more. There are several clinical trials going on. One of them is pedigree, which is about to, I think, finish enrollment next year. And that's a neat one to look at the sequencing. Um, Dr. Uh, Tian Zhang study um, and Dr. Tony Chiori's study. So it's looking at giving IOI or doublet based upon the response. The patients can get either a single agent immunotherapy or can be, you know, can be randomized to TKI versus TKI and IO. So I think the sequencing here is important. So, um, but all these options are, are really good options and what's feasible and to kind of match the safety profile to what you see with your patient's uh, comorbidity. No, that's great. I, th I think you summarized and, and, you know, the literature continues to evolve. I think some of the key take homes I, I sort of took away from what you mentioned is obviously the, the critical importance of uh, risk stratification. Uh, I think that that's something that really, as you alluded to, uh, using some risk strata to assess good, intermediate and poor risk. Um, I think the other uh, key takeaway I took uh, from what you just said was that a single agent therapy for for metastatic kidney cancer would it be correct to say is probably not at this point the standard of care and then patients should at least have doublet therapy in general with either IOIO or IOTKI is well, that correct I I think I would probably rephrase that and say single agent TKI in select patient is still viable but you're right in general it's the doublet that is being used whether it's IOIO or IO plus TKI so we, we've been talking a lot about um, IO therapy. Um, we've been talking about them. We first talked about in urothelial cancer. Now we're talking about um, uh, them with regards to kidney cancer, renal cell carcinoma. Let's talk a little bit about um, side effects and, and associated symptoms. Um, and, 
and maybe you could even sort of bundle in the EV into this conversation. But what what would we expect to see from patients? Obviously, I think urologists and urologic practitioners are fairly familiar with many of the side effects associated with platinum um, and systemic chemotherapy. But obviously, this is a different landscape. Talk to us a little bit about um, sort of the AEs and, and, and symptom complex and what we should be aware of when we maybe co-manage a lot of these patients who uh, we see in practice. Yeah, so immunotherapy, I think we have um, had some experience because these have been there for uh, a few years. So um, I, as I tell my patients, anything you can attach itis to because it causes inflammation. So patients can have nephritis, hepatitis, patients arthritis, dermatitis, colitis, you know, the big one. Um, So they can have so anything that you can attach itis to can happen. Uh, hormone imbalance like thyroid, uh, hypophysitis, or endocrine imbalance with adrenal insufficiency can be seen in these patients. Um, and and the, the other important uh, thing to remember is, is cardiovascular, like uh, myocarditis, less than 1%, I would say, but it is known and it's quite and can be fatal in some patients. I, I think we we have, uh, I've lost one at least in the last few years due to that. Um, and again, the neurological, the bigger thing that you can look for, look for in your patients is anything reflecting symptoms that could, you know, point towards myasthenia gravis or Guillain-Barre type of syndromes. So I think those are important. Uh, pneumonitis, again, a very important one. Uh, and the ways of, so if you take colitis, like if patient comes in and is getting immunotherapy, comes with diarrhea, when patients are getting IO and TKI, it can be a little bit tricky as whether the TKI itself is causing diarrhea because it could be side effect from TKI or immunotherapy. And one of the things we say I, I do in general practice is to hold the TKI first and see if the diarrhea kind of um, you know, um, resolves and, and you can conservatively manage it with Imodium or, or, or Lamodil. Um, but if it's not, then it's probably pointing towards immune colitis. But you also have to rule out any cause of infection because some of times these patients could get antibiotics and it could be Clostridium infection or any other bacterial infection. So once that is ruled out, you could then treat them with steroids. And if it's getting worse, like recurrent or grade two or more, you're worried about, then of course you will refer to the experts, in this case, the GI. So I think that's uh, for immunotherapy, that's the bundle that you should remember, anything you can attach itis to. But a lot of these therapies, I would say, in my experience, 80% of them would walk through without having any significant side effects Hmm. um, and could continue to get treatment. And even if they get really bad side effects, we can sometimes hold these, treat it once it resolves, we can re-challenge with a little bit of steroids like 10 milligram of prednisone and they will do well. In terms of EV, it's a really different class of drugs. Um, so it can bring a little bit challenge when you combine with it. So like rash could be seen. So the rash with EV and Pembro could be pretty significant. So watching out for blisters and, and Stephen Johnson's has been reported with that. Um, also looking out for hyperglycemia with EV. EV can cause hyperglycemia. And uh, the most important, I think, uh, for the use of EV uh, or limiting the use of enfortimab could be peripheral neuropathy. So the sensory peripheral neuropathy is very common. The motor 
is rare, but it is seen. I We have had patients who have had really brilliant response, kept their walker outside, and I have a patient who walked in too, and you ask her, and she said, no, I'm feeling good. And then when I bumped into next to the elevator, I'm like, why are you using, why are you using the walker? She had loss of balance. So mm. we had to stop that. And fortunately, she did really well because we continued the immunotherapy and she remains in CR. But, but this is something that one has to clearly watch out for. No, that's great. That's uh, super, uh, super valuable to sort of get your perspective. And I think the way you summarized uh, the immune-related AEs are just really easy to, to remember. So um, in the last few moments here, maybe we'll talk a little bit about prostate. You know, we've done a number of different prostate cancer programs uh, on our educational podcast series. Many of them have really emphasized the role of novel hormonal therapy and the evolving landscape of novel hormonal therapy. But we haven't really talked as much, admittedly, on uh, immunotherapy and prostate cancer. So maybe I'll finish this off and maybe talk to us a little bit about immunotherapy and prostate cancer, maybe vaccine trials or any other trials that we should be familiar with. Yeah, so I think there's not much, you know, there's a lot going in prostate cancer, I, I, I should say that, but we haven't seen a lot of effect of um, the immunotherapy and because, you know, the immune boosting, because we consider that prostate cancer is a cold tumor, so anything that could make these cold tumors hot, I think people have used strategies. I think the most upcoming one is the CAR-T, right? The, the chimeric antigen receptor, these still very investigational, but there are some studies that are going out against, uh, I think PSMA or the steep one that is expressed on prostate cancer. Um, so I, I think the research studies uh, are evaluating the role of them in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. So more to come on that. But uh, funny enough, because, you know, immunotherapy, especially checkpoint inhibitor hasn't worked in prostate cancer, but the first immunotherapy to make its mark in the GU was the Cipilocell-T, right? Mm -hmm. The Provenge vaccine that uh, so we called. Uh, and that had gained the, um, the approval based on the impact study that was published that showed about four months overall survival benefit. And it was approved for patients who had metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer, minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic bone only disease. But um, with so many things happening in prostate cancer world, I think people are not waiting for it. Um, I think um, the use of, I should say, the Cipolosal T has not been that much when compared to five years ago or something. Uh, and the other thing is, um, you know, there are several large studies that looked into combining androgen receptor um, hormonal therapies like enzalutamide with the, with the immunotherapy the, to, you know, the keynote 641 that used Pembro plus Enza versus Enza didn't really show any benefit. And then you have the hormone prostate cancer study uh, that was actually terminated early, keynote 991, I believe. Um, and then, you know, several other studies didn't show. The only horizon, uh, only thing on the horizon coming up is the contact O2. Uh, and that's using, um, based mainly on the cosmic 021 data that used cabozatinib and atezolizumab in metastatic CRPC. And it showed an overall response rate of 23%. Um, so, so the phase three of that, the contact O2, um, you know, there was a press release. I, I'm hoping we'll learn more on that, uh, but maybe that would be a promise. But so far, in a nutshell, the checkpoint inhibitors have not been effective in prostate cancer. 
patients. Great. Well, Monica, thanks. Thanks so much. You, you know, you did, you did, you took on a very daunting task, which we threw at you, which is to summarize immunotherapy across all urologic malignancies. I thought you did a, a fabulous job sort of walking us through uh, sort of the three big diseases that we see, urothelial, kidney, prostate, and, and obviously highlighting, I think, some of the big uh, sentinel trials that we should be familiar with. So first of all, I do really want to thank you uh, again for the time. I know everyone gets busy around the holidays. I do appreciate you, as does the AUA, in taking some time uh, to do this podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, and happy holidays to everyone. Happy holidays to you, Monica, and to our audience. Uh, thank you very much for your time and your attention. Uh, Dr. Joshi did include a number of references. So if any of you want to do a deeper dive on any of the studies that she brought up, she has a number of references that we will include on the website. And you can visit us for more information at auanet.org university. Uh, Monica, have a great uh, holiday. Um, I, I say to most people, I, I look forward to seeing you soon, but you might my neighbor, so I'm sure I'll see you in the neighborhood <laughs> uh, in the next week or so. <laughs> Thank you so much.